Okay. Who can tell me what today is? Who can tell me what today is? Debbie, can you t- Debbie Hildebrand, can you tell me what today is? What's today? Yes, it is Cormie's birthday. But as it happens, Cormie's birthday shares it. Let's give him a hand. <laughs> really, we're thanking the Lord for another trip around the sun. Amen, Cormie? <laughs> uh, but as it happens, Cormie's birthday shares a date with another important anniversary. Does anyone else know what that anniversary would be today? Okay, I'll give you a hint. The first person to identify what that anniversary is will win. I've just touched it without gloved hands. Oh, well. This delicious tulip cookie. It's a tulip cookie. Can anyone, t- if, if no one here knows what it is, then, then I will eat this cookie with a cup of Earl Grey tea, hot. What is it? N- no, no, no. Praise the Lord. We're past the first day of spring. Is that, does anyone know? Huh? The redcoats are coming? <laughs> I can't hear. My, my hearing is too bad to hear that. I'm sorry. Well, I guess I get to eat the cookie. That kind of ruins things. Thank you, Pastor Chris. The diet of worms. Aren't you glad that I'm giving you a cookie and not whatever's in this bowl? Here you go. Let's give Pastor Chris a hand. I know. I appreciate that. The diet of worms. Aren't you glad I got you a cookie? But in this particular case, today marks the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's appearance before the Diet of Worms, where he presented a defense of his writings critical of Rome and boldly refused to recant them. His remarks, delivered first in German and then again in Latin at the behest of the court, prompted a demand that he should answer one simple question whether he would retract or not. Hence, he continued, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Hirschte ich, ich kann nicht anders. Gott helfe mir. Amen. Which translates, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, 
Amen. And so today, half a millennium later, we stand on the shoulders of Brother Martin and the other reformers who returned the word of God to its rightful place as the only inspired and infallible rule for the nature and practice of our faith. So let us turn to this word together, to this precious gift of God, to his church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you turn there with me, please? 2 Corinthians 5. And if you'd please stand with me, if you are able, in honor of God's word. 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 17. This is the word of God for his people, for you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father Ed, now... We pray your blessing to the reading of and to the teaching of your word. By your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Forgive us our sins, for they are many. Make us like your son, we pray. In his name. Amen. Be seated. Speaking the truth can get you into trouble. In standing for truth, Luther joined a line of noteworthy troublemakers, from patriarchs and prophets to apostles and indeed to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians finds him in literal chains. A fact he neglects to mention until the very closing remarks at the end of chapter 6. And which he mentions only as he requests prayer that he would have the boldness to continue declaring the precise message that got him there in the first place. Instead, he spends the bulk of that epistle glorying in our divine inheritance, in God's purposeful, sovereign plan and its certain execution, rejoicing in the salvation of his audience and giving thanks for their faithfulness and generosity. 
plumbing the depths of the mystery of salvation by grace through faith and its implications for the life of the Christ follower. It almost seems as if Paul was too preoccupied with the glory of God to be distracted by those cold, hard chains binding him to a watchful prison guard. Have you ever wondered about how Paul, a Roman citizen, spent so much time in jail? Roman citizenship was kind of a big deal in the first century. Roman prisoners who lacked citizenship were commonly subjected to all kinds of brutal treatment without any regard to their social status, while Roman citizens received very preferential treatment. Yet the only reason we even know that Paul was a Roman citizen, a member of this very privileged class, is because of an interaction with a government official that's recorded for us in the Acts of the Apostles, where he was flat out asked in chapter 22, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. Mic drop. Roman citizenship was pretty close to the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card. And yet, by all indications, Paul pretty much kept it in his wallet. In terms of credentials, he was inclined to assert his pedigree as a Jew, but only as a means to stifle the accusations, actual or anticipated, of the Jewish authorities. Remember, many of the first Christians were Jewish. And the early church was beset with Judaizers, people who were intent on forcing Gentile believers into submission to all sorts of signs and practices that Christ had abolished in establishing the new covenant. And so Paul mostly hides his Roman citizen card and uses his son of Abraham's status only in a way that will draw further ire from the Pharisees. The history of the Jews was a history of exile, a history of wandering, of seeking a home. All of God's instruction to the people of the Old Covenant was designed to keep them separate, unique, a people set apart from the world to preserve a line for Messiah. These saints lived by faith in expectation of a future kingdom. Most of us are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Verse 13, These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so we see that there is a very real sense in which the Lord purposed by their wanderings to instill within his covenant people a deep sense of anticipation, of yearning for a promise fulfilled, to defend against the natural inclination that we all have toward entanglement in a temporary, passing, earthly home. Their history bears this out. Every time the children of Israel set up shop, that slide toward assimilation and syncretism, both just fancy words for idolatry, was well-oiled and not far behind. The moment God's covenant people started finding the comforts of home in this world, the urge to press on toward a heavenly home was inevitably going to pass. And so, by God's design, his covenant people, for the most of their history, were uprooted and destined to wander. Strangers and exiles. I must reiterate, by God's design. Now, I want you to notice something peculiar. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul writes, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you see that? Who is Paul addressing here in Ephesians? Gentile believers. And he says they were strangers and aliens. With respect to whom? With respect to whom were they strangers and aliens? Speak up. God, yes. And to his covenant people. Who, by the way, we've just identified as strangers and exiles. God's purpose, it would seem, is that all people, Jews, Gentiles, all people, should not be at peace until they are one with him and at rest in his everlasting kingdom. Just a few pages ahead there, ahead to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me 
And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, now back to my question. Why does Paul not seem particularly inclined to play his coveted Roman citizen card? Clearly, in the mind of the apostle, his citizenship in heaven supersedes his Roman citizenship and his pedigree as a son of Abraham. And that is the power of Paul's position. Amen? That is the platform from which Paul proclaimed Christ not by the authority of his training in the Tanakh, not according to the privilege of a Roman citizen, but as an ambassador for God to the world and as a citizen of an everlasting kingdom. I have to ask, what do you picture when I use the term ambassador? If I told you this morning that we were joined today by an official ambassador from a foreign land, say Saudi Arabia or Hungary or Serbia, do you think that uh, you would have much difficulty in picking them out? Probably not. By the very nature of the office of an ambassador, they do not generally attempt to mimic or adopt the cultural, philosophical, or linguistic norms of their posts. Their objective as an ambassador is not to blend in, nor do they callously flaunt their differences in such a way as to make themselves the center of attention. On the contrary, the role of an ambassador is to represent the customs, ideals, and interest. The message of their homeland in general and of their sovereign in particular. There is a term, by the way, for an ambassador who abandons his responsibilities, abdicates his citizenship, and declares allegiance to a hostile post. That term is traitor. Now, this is where our shared American experience has not served us well in the church. This this great and beautiful constitutional democracy, so brilliantly protecting precious rights, has provided a ground for us to forget our true citizenship, our first citizenship. 
even the most disadvantaged among us have enjoyed prosperity and freedom from persecution that would blow the minds of most saints through most of history. At what time and in what place in history has it been easier to identify openly, even cooler, to identify openly as a Christian? (laughs) Contemporary historical revisionism notwithstanding, the United States took root in soil heavily fertilized by a commitment to religious freedom and to a distinctly Christian or Judeo-Christian philosophy and morality. America, it seemed, was anything but hostile to the kingdom of heaven. That's the tricky bit. As the church grew and thrived on these fruited plains, the greatest surge of missionaries in history went forth to proclaim the gospel into every corner of the world. Even to those very places where great movements such as the Reformation had once found their beginnings only for later generations to reject the gospel and its God. Such is the story arc for nation after nation after nation in the history of the world. Faith, once formed in adversity, grows soft in the warm current of ease and comfort. The salt loses its savor. And waters once running hot and cold assume body temperature and are spat out. And it would appear. Have you watched the news? It would appear our turn has come. To be brutally honest, our earthly nation is a hot mess. Our culture, our courts, our laws increasingly call wrong right and right wrong. I've grown up proud to be an American. Remember when I was a probably middle schooler, I guess, I went up to Word of Life Island. And while I was there, I bought an LP. Some of y'all know what an LP is. I bought an LP. I don't remember the name of the LP, but I know it had, I remember it was about America. America. And it had this song on it that said, I'm just a flag-waving American. That is all I really want to be. I'm just a flag-waving American, a liberty love in red and white and blue variety. Nothing wrong with that song as a patriotic, fun song. But it came to me on a record from a Christian publisher. Somewhere in there, a healthy love and appreciation for the freedoms we enjoy blended perilously with the idea of citizenship and 
and, and what kind of citizen I am. Times have changed. Oh, times have changed. Any church today committed to standing on biblical authority is no longer merely countercultural. Make no mistake. The chambers are loaded and the crosshairs are moving in our direction. But here's the good news. Persecution is coming. That's what I said. That persecution is coming is good news, in fact. The imminence of persecution should come as no surprise. Most of us have experienced it in little ways to some extent in our lives. And unless you're very young or have been living in a monastery, you've seen it on the rise. Amen? But there are three reasons. I'm not just going to say that ridiculous thing and leave you wondering why. There are three reasons why I think the coming persecution is a good thing. Number one, persecution draws a clear distinction between the church and the culture. It marks a line between professors and possessors. And God, listen to me, God is faithful to grant peace and assurance as we stand firm in the face of change, of ridicule, and eventually, yes, persecution. Number two, persecution, this is, history is full of this. Persecution fuels faith. God has promised to stand with us and strengthen us in times of adversity, multiplying the faith that he gave us in the first place as a gift. His word and his spirit will sustain us. You think you've got faith? You ain't seen faith until you've been tested and come through strengthened by his spirit. Amen? Some of you have experienced this. I remember as a kid, it was the Cold War and uh, Ivan was the enemy. And at youth events, they used to do things like have a lock-in or something. And then they'd have these guys come in with, like they were dressed up as Russian soldiers, like storming the place. And like, you know, this could happen. The Russians could come in and take your freedom. Are you going to stand for Jesus then? Well, newsflash, it ain't the Russians. Socialists, maybe, but it's not the Russians. I thought a lot about that growing up. I obsessed on that. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I came to terms with the idea that it's okay to say, no, I don't think I do have the strength to stand in that moment. Not in me. But you know what? I know my God. And I know that he gave me the the strength to stand to now. And in that moment, I absolutely believe I would have the strength. 
not because I have the faith in me, but because in that moment, the Holy Spirit shows up and gives you what you need. Persecution fuels faith. And it may just be a gift from God. Number three, persecution forces us to remember that this world is not our home. And it stimulates our appetite for our true and everlasting home. Amen? (laughs) So what do we do? Listen, God did not cause you to be situated in this part of the world and call you to himself so that you would be an American Christian. He has called you out of the world to be a joint heir with his son, a citizen of an everlasting kingdom. And he has placed you here to fulfill the mission of an ambassador. If you are in Christ, you are God's ambassador to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your town, to your county, to your state, to your nation, to the whole world. But no term of identification should ever modify who you are as a Christian. Do you understand? When you say American Christian, America becomes an adjective and it's modifying Christian. Don't let anything modify you as a Christian. God has not called you to be an American Christian. He has called you to be a Christian mother, a Christian father, a Christian student, a Christian teacher, a Christian employer, a Christian employee, a Christian delegate, a Christian community worker, a Christian doctor or nurse, a Christian tax collector or jailer, a Christian banker, pilot, artist, retail worker, producer, entrepreneur, bus driver, or refuse transportation operative. That's a trash man. Whatever he has called you to do, do it as if eternity is in the balance. For someone you serve, it is. There is honor. Listen, there is honor in your vocation. And you are his ambassador in it. You do it in service to your neighbor, and you do it for him. The fact that he has situated you in the United States of America is gravy for you. Until the courts are packed and the Constitution is revoked, you are still afforded the greatest freedoms ever known to man under human governance to proclaim the goodness of God and his gracious desire to save lost people from their sins. So I say, implore them on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The days are short, but God is still at work. Even as the character of this great union continues to decline, as long as you remember that you are called to be a Christian American so that who you are as a Christian defines and indeed superintends your identity as an American. You'll never allow a shift in what it means to be an American to redefine what kind of Christian you are. I spoke earlier of Martin Luther's refusal on this date to recant of his scandalous writings Luther loved to slay sacred cows. 
and in the Church of Rome, a great distinction was made between holy vocations and secular occupations. The term vocation was carefully reserved for what the church taught were holy callings. The priesthood or the ascetic cloistered life of a monk or a nun. Luther wrote and spoke boldly in opposition to that very notion, proclaiming that all of God's children were appointed as ministers, as ambassadors for God to the world around them. In Luther's theology, which he found in Paul's, by the way, there is no such thing as a secular occupation for a follower of Christ. It doesn't exist. The church at the time accused him of demeaning the elevated role of churchmen, But in reality, he merely sought to elevate the labor of the common believer by placing it in its proper context. Whatever work we do, we serve others on behalf of God who is using us to meet their needs and to accomplish his purposes. This way of thinking completely transforms our motivation in our work. Luther wrote, The prince should think, Christ has served me and made everything to follow him. Therefore, I also should serve my neighbor, protect him and everything that belongs to him. That is why God has given me an office, and I have it that I might serve him. That would be a good prince and ruler. When a prince sees his neighbor oppressed, he should think, that concerns me. I must protect and shield my neighbor. The same is true for a shoemaker, tailor, scribe, or reader. If he is a Christian tailor, he will say, I will make these clothes because God has bidden me to do so, so that I can earn a living and so that I can help and serve my neighbor. When a Christian does not serve the other, Luther said, God is not present. That is not Christian living. One of the fruits of this notion in the English Reformation, was the very use of the term minister to refer to holders of cabinet offices within the British government. It is a distinction which is sadly lost on most everyone today. Now, we fought a war to be free from the British crown, but if I may, it is a shame that we lost this notion in the process. Politicians, listen, Politicians, God's ministers in our secular government are under heavy pressure to bend to the often contradictory wills of their constituents, their parties, and their contributors, and everybody else. We need to pray for these servants. It is not shameful work for them to be engaged in civil governance in this temporary home of ours. It is God's ministry for them. It is an honorable vocation. So to the Christian office holder, I would only say, we're praying for you. And remember, above all, you are an ambassador of Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ to the House of Delegates. You are an ambassador of Christ to the Senate. 
You're an ambassador of Christ to the town. That's your first calling. When I was a young man, perhaps a child, on every occasion where I was leaving our home to visit a friend or participate in some social gathering, believe it or not, I did. Atari blasts counted. Whenever I was leaving the house, one of my parents was always certain to admonish me, remember who you represent. The casual listener might have thought this was their way of saying, don't shame the hills. (laughs) But I understood their meaning. As I prepared for this morning, I was reminded of the precious old text. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so it is that the apostle could spend an entire epistle glorying in the goodness of God before closing to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance making supplications for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, In the radiant glory of God our Father, to whom we have been reconciled by our Savior Jesus Christ and made joint heirs and citizens in this everlasting kingdom, we, your people, submit together to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Lead us, Lord. Protect us, we pray, from becoming so comfortable here that we become entangled, forgetting our citizenship is in heaven and neglecting our calling. Forbid it, Lord, that we should place our trust in nations or parties or people. Have mercy, O God, on this nation. Have mercy. Strengthen us in your word, by your Holy Spirit, and make us worthy of the title, Ambassador for God. All God's people said, Amen.